When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of August 18th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll discuss the election of Rob Manfred, a name familiar to dozens of fans for his role in labor talks and drug policy as Major League Baseball's next commissioner and what it means for the sport. We'll then turn to smaller baseball players and discuss the Little League World Series and the Youth Sports Industrial Complex with Mark Hyman, who has written three books about youth sports. Finally, ESPN's Bonnie Ford will be with us to talk about FIFA's decision to play next year's Women's World Cup on turf and whether that reflects unequal treatment for women in sports. Slate executive editor and podcasting impresario Josh Levine is away vacationing, I believe, on a private island in the Saragasso Sea. I'm not even sure there are any islands in the Saragasso Sea. It's probably pretty cold there. I've always just wanted to say Saragasso C. So joining me from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hiya, Mike Pesca. 
The Saragasso Sea is 1,100 kilometers wide, you know, the wide Saragasso Sea, I believe that was the name of a movie. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so how could it not have islands? Yeah. The Azores are in the Saragasso. Oh, they are? Yeah. See, I didn't know that. Do you know what the Saragasso Sea is named after? I'll give you three choices. You ready? Go. Okay. Currents, the birds, or the seaweed? Currents. Saragossum seaweed. Oh. Damn. All right, cool. All right, right, we already got the trivia out of the way. Guestapalooza 2, The Reckoning. Before we get started, Mike, I got to say, I enjoyed your afterball last week about Melito Perez, but you, ne- <laughs> you neglected some key facts about the oh, okay. true Yankee. Tell me. Brother of another quirky 90s pitching great, Pasquale Perez. Uh-huh. And they both had among the finest Jerry curls, Jerry curls of all yes, time. That I know, yes. There's a third pitching Perez brother, too, Carlos. Couldn't of find course any, there is. Couldn't this find is any photographs. That's how the Perez's That's how they roll. They always, yeah. It's like the Alou brothers. There's always three. It's like the other Perez brothers. Which ones are those? The Molina brothers, right? Three of them, too. Well, yeah. It's like a sitcom waiting to happen. And the Martini. And the Martini. Did you know that Melito Perez, according to Wikipedia, is now the mayor of San Gregorio de Nigua in the Dominican Republic? His uh, his stats as mayor are actually a lot better than they look on paper. (laughs) Yeah. His, his, uh, let me think what it would be. His value above replacement bureaucrat is off the charts. <laughs> All right. 22 years ago next month, Major League Baseball's 28 club owners forced Commissioner Faye Vincent to resign. Murray Chass of the New York Times reported that the owners were likely to push for a restructured commissioner's office with reduced powers, perhaps changing forever the way baseball is administered. Two days later, they named Milwaukee Brewers owner Alan H. Bud Selig, who had helped build the opposition to Vincent as the chairman of their executive council. The owners pledged to begin a search for a new commissioner soon. Of course, it never happened. Selig was elevated to acting commissioner, and then baseball dropped the acting after six years. He canceled the 1994 World Series, presided over the steroids era and its bogus records, and also over an era of labor peace and competitive balance. He added two teams, expanded the playoffs, added interleague play, ended an all-star game in a tie, introduced instant replay, and much, much more. And now he has handed over the job of commissioner to his labor consigliere, 55-year-old Rob Manfred. It's safe to say that the transformation of this job is complete from one with mythic stature in American culture. This is a job that was once held by a federal judge and a president of Yale to one that is far more mundane. Mike Pesca. Do you agree with that assessment? The third, eighth, and sixth sentences, yes. It doesn't surprise me for a number of reasons that they chose Rob Manfred. Uh, Usually when a business, a huge business is going gangbusters, they promote from within. Or it's quite frequent. You know, the Ford Motors never had to reach outside until things were really terrible. You know, Apple, there was a lot of question after Jobs. Well, they got Tim Cook, who was, you know, the vice president of worldwide operations before it was promoted. So... On that basis, if you don't even know who Rob Manfred is, if you told me the finances of this organization and that there was a candidate who was seen as a front runner, who was essentially the top lieutenant of the guy who created so much value for the owners, and that's what the owners care about, I'd say, well, whoever that guy is, he should do it. But then when you know about the specifics of Rob Manfred, not that he's without controversy, not no, that not his. Yeah, not that some of his methods, especially his uh, 
policing tactics aren't uh, extremely aggressive and need to be talked about. But what the owners want are people, someone who's going to make them money. And there's very little evidence that uh, Rob Manfred wouldn't continue on the policies that make the owners money, especially make the owners other than, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox and a couple other giant clubs money. Because I'm sure that those huge, big, big team owners, and these were, there were 10 owners who voted against him. And it was reported that mostly they were from the huge clubs. And if there is going to be some discontent, it will probably be those people who would say, you know, actually what Bud Selig's revenue sharing did was take money out of my pocket. Although I think that's a little myopic too. But yeah, so Manfred is an unexciting choice, but making tons of money hand over fist is unexciting. What you could do with the money, though, is sometimes exciting. It is exciting. Um, well, Manfred, it's, I think it completely follows a pattern in sports that has progressed over the last 20 years. Look at Adam Silver in the NBA, David Stern's lieutenant, Roger Goodell in the NFL was uh, Paul Tagliabue's lieutenant. These guys apprenticed to commissioners. Baseball was really the holdout in the sort of move toward bringing in someone who worked for the league as a lawyer, someone who is sort of entrenched in the league's business, particularly its labor operations to take over. You know, baseball had this sort of this mythic baloney that, you know, Kennesaw Mountain Landis and we need someone above the game that can keep the owners in check and keep watch over the national pastime. I mean, that's just a load of crap. And, you know, the people that preceded Selig fell into the mold of we're not going to hire just a career bureaucrat, a baseball business lifer. Faye Vincent was the head of Columbia Pictures or he was worked at Coke and Columbia Pictures. Bart Giamatti was the Yale president. Peter Uberoth was the ran the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984. These were sort of glamour appointments, not Vincent so much, who took over after Giamatti died. But these were not sort of people schooled in the business of baseball. And what's happened in the last 20 years, and I think it sort of parallels the way that fans look at the game. You know, everything is much more quantitative. Everything is much more analytical. There is less sort of hoo-ha about the status of baseball in American life. And appointing someone who is effectively a bureaucrat as commissioner confirms that this job does not have the cachet that we thought it had or that it had for 100 years. Well, cachet is very closely related to cash, and that's what it's about. I mean, back in our romantic times of the 70s or 80s or whatever, sure, baseball yeah, had a more... the 1880s. Yeah, baseball had a more central role in the imagination, but it made the people who owned baseball much less money, and that's the important point to them. Also, I would say that Vincent was seen as a failed commissioner, and Giamatti didn't serve for long, but, you know, not seen as a great success. Well, Vincent, certainly... Vincent was seen as a failed commissioner because he... By the he... other commissioner. By, by the, the other owners had a vote uh, by the other owners the only people who had a vote so the only people who matter in right. this, in the context of this discussion right. and I mean, the transformation like yeah the <laughs> transformation the transformation was this belief that the commissioner's job was above the owners that right. his his job was to serve the best interests of baseball and what Vincent proved was that, no, 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 you work at our behest. And if you don't want to work at our behest, we will fire you and we'll put in one of our own. Selig, but when the obviously... only people who have a vote are the owners, how could that not be the case? It seemed illogical, maybe because of tradition or how Kennesaw Mountain Landis got the job or how much more powerful he was. You know, how he was probably better known than any singular owner 
after a while, the logic of that, that the hiring committee, you have to do, you, there, are no, there are no shareholders to placate. You just have to do the will of the hiring committee. The hiring committee wants to make money. You're going to make us money. Can we for a second, though, talk about yeah. that? I do question the idea. I do think we're living in a sports bubble. I think uh, any uh, competent person X would have overseen a huge expansion in the amount of money that's paid to baseball, football, every sport owner, Mm -hmm. basketball, you know, look at the Clippers. However, I don't want to be so, I don't think it's the case that, hey, these owners are smart. That's how they make money. I'm sure they're smart, but there are people who've made a lot of money can also make a lot of stupid decisions in their lives. And I also don't want to poo-poo the fact and say it's only chance that they're sitting on top of this huge pile of wealth. But I do look at the compensation of Roger Goodell, and it seems extremely illogical and extremely too high. But I'm not one of the 32 guys who own a team. Maybe they know more than I do. And the same thing with Bud Selig. Like, all that's been said is, like, he's made us so much money. He's increased the coffers so much. Let's continue on this way. I mean, we can't run an experiment where we would find out how much just any other guy would have made him money. But I do think that the owners believe that there's something about the uh, about what Selig was doing and then believe that Manfred's going to carry it on. That is specific to those people, uh, how they make the owners money. Not everybody thought that, of course. Uh, there was some opposition. You pointed out that eight or ten owners were initially opposed to Manfred, though, of course, in the Selig tradition, he achieved consensus in the end and everybody voted for Manfred. And the guy leading that pack was Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Chicago White Sox, one of the longest lasting owners in baseball, longtime ally of Bud Selig, a guy who with Selig orchestrated Faye Vincent's departure from the sport. And Reinsdorf it seemed, wanted to sort of push baseball back to those glorious years of the 70s and 80s where every labor confrontation resulted in a work stoppage and players and owners tried and failed to retain this tremendous hegemony over, over the terms of the working agreement with the players, which was kind of crazy. I think to say that, you know, Reinsdorf was an ally is like to say Tywin Lannister is an ally. He's a very political guy. And I think he got in a fit of pique over certain things. He, you know, wants to be more central and he wants to be the guy making decisions, it would seem. And the alternative uh, candidates who were... Who was it going to be if it wasn't going to be? Tom Werner, the former Hollywood producer and uh, co-owner of the Red Sox. Right. And that just seems, you know. Who was in baseball, by the way, when Selig was elevated as one of the owners of the San Diego Padres? Acknowledged. But I do think that trying to uh, get a vote for 10 others reflects more, you know, kind of wacky billionaires who just like to be kowtow to as opposed to a business strategy that you can underline and say, yeah, there's a lot of logic to that. I mean, I know why they voted that way. We went through some are big market teams. Artie Moreno, I, I think, was just mm-hmm. uh, very loyal to, to Jerry Reinsdorf and things like this. But in general, it would have been really stupid to have Tom Warner be the be the, right. I think I, it, would it would have been, been a step back, be frankly. Yeah. Right. I think I think sports should. I'm not opposed to this idea that sports should be governed by real people with real world experience. Like if anybody actually believed, you know, that Bob Costas or George Bush was going to become commissioner of baseball, they're insane. Uh, Rob Manfred makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, he was involved in, among other things, the home plate collisions rules redo 
Not great. Dodgers bankruptcy, litigation between the Orioles and Nationals over local cable rights, which is ongoing. Yeah. Uh, trying to resolve some of the revenue disparities among teams, and that's actually worked pretty well. Uh, the biogenesis investigation, not a finer moment. He was, he was rolled out onto 60 Minutes as the spokesman for baseball in that case. But yeah, he's a guy, you know, he's not a businessman. He's a lawyer by training. Harvard Law School, he, was a, he came out of college wanting to do labor management and labor law. This is a very straightforward appointment. And now what does baseball do? You know, there have been lots of pieces written in the last few days about what's on Manfred's plate. There's a labor negotiation coming up in a couple of years. But Mike, what other things would you like to see the commissioner do? I'd like to see him not be so there is a chance we'll see this, but I'd like to see him not so be not so driven by overcorrecting the steroid sins of the past. And I think that that most of the excess is a Bud Selig. I mean, there's a mass in dispute between the Orioles and the Nationals. You know, someone's going to be happy, someone's not. How much discretion do you have to give justice that will satisfy most people? But I think Bud Selig was asleep at the switch for a while, and all he wanted was for it to be said, you know, once he once he got religion, he had the zeal of a convert. Well, maybe now this is the next generation, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe Manfred, even though he was the Inspector Javert at the right hand of Bud Selig, Maybe he won't be so driven by trying to, you know, redefine, burnish his legacy or whatever. Just let's get past this era. Let's stop thinking that this is the thing that's uh, driving baseball. We saw, we uh, shared a video of Keith Oberman talking about what I'd like to do as commissioner and basically said, I don't care about money. Here are the things we should do. And it was just a litany of, you know, all the complaints that I guess if there were a, uh, good government or, you know, some sort of like Fred Wertheimer group that keeps baseball accountable, like the wish list of things that Keith go Oberman against... could run that. Yeah. And everyone exactly. would ignore it. Like, let's have two day games in the World Series. Sure, it never happened. Let's eliminate these games in Korea and Japan. I think if it grows the market, I don't really care about yeah. that. You know, let's go back to whatever, sanitary socks. None of this stuff at all appeals to me. Let's, you know? ban, let's ban chewing tobacco. Okay, yeah, maybe, sure. sure, whatever. Let's make the game faster. Fine. Yes, let's do that. Let's find right. ways. The Atlantic the League thing. and Independent League is thing. doing that. That is a big thing. I took a lot of, uh, well, a lot. I got two or three tweets from listeners when I said on NPR that, one of the things I bet happens is that Manfred and baseball do something about the designated hitter to try to bring the leagues into rules conformity. And I said, you know, just, just at this point, there's no way you're getting rid of the DH because of the union. So it's time yeah. for the National League to just adopt the DH. Also, when something's happened for 40 years, that's not, you know, a blip. Like, there are a lot of sports themselves that are much younger than the designated hitter. Yeah. Well, and, and Oberman's whole rant was about the children, of course. Let's make the game appealing to the children. And, you know, there is also a point there that sports generally, but baseball in particular, have created a product that is very difficult for people under the age of, I don't know, pick your random age to watch, appreciate, get into. That's true. And I would just say that the Derek Jeter cloning program is going a long way to cure that. Well, that's Manfred's priority from what I understand. You get a Jeter. Baseball you get a technicians Jeter. are at work now in the laboratory creating the new Derek Cheater. All right. Speaking of children, what a segue. The most wholesome event on the sporting calendar is underway in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Prepubescent boys. And this year, two girls making goofy faces, great outfield catches. 
There's always that 6-2 pitching freak in my league, in Little League. It was Craig McGann. He was on the Cubs. I closed yeah. my eyes and got a hit off of him. Yeah. Uh, the stadium outfield berm in Williamsport, the tears of the losing players, the sepia-toned history, the Little League World Series. It's also televised in prime time. It generates almost $10 million a year in broadcast revenue. It's sponsored by Gatorade, Honda, Canon, and other corporate behemoths. It could be worse, but the Little League World Series is a monument to the youth sports industrial complex. In the studio here in Washington with me is Mark Hyman. Mark has worked for many Dead Tree Media, including Business Week, The Baltimore Sun, and The Daily Pennsylvanian. He's a teaching assistant professor of sports management at George Washington University, and he's the author of three books about youth sports, including The Most Expensive Game in Town, The Rising Cost of Youth Sports, and Its Toll on Today's Families. Hi, Mark. What a pleasure to be with you, Stefan, even in spite of that introduction. <laughs> Why in spite of the introduction? I oh, got it man, all in there. Was, College unusual. to today. A lot to live up to. A lot yeah. to live up to, Mark. All right, let's start by talking about this dichotomy when it comes to the Little League World Series. On the surface, there is a lot to like. The games are fun to watch. This is that sweet spot age to watch children do things. The coaches and kids seem to have the right priorities. And I think it helps that they mic the coaches on ESPN so they can't scream at the kids. Um, And even the event itself doesn't seem that bad. There's no ads on the jerseys. There's no billboards on the outfield fences. ESPN doesn't linger on the tiers. But you can also say that it's a lot like the Olympics. They hide all the sponsorships and you mouth the right words. But the reality is this is driven by money, money, money. It's an enormous business, and uh, in fact, I mean, Little League Baseball's revenues annually are about $25 million, and of that, $15 million is generated pretty much by the Little League World Series, uh, about $9 million a year from uh, the television rights to ESPN, and another $6.5 million by corporate sponsorship. So, I mean, this is a branding opportunity for Little League. There are 2.5 million kids around the world playing Little League. Many of them are playing... Because of the Little League World Series. So, look, Little League is a big business, and and the Little League World Series is exhibit A in terms of the the whole growth of of youth sports into, you know, a business enterprise. Is Little League's gambit to say we want more – obviously they say it, and I'm sure they mean it – we want more kids playing organized baseball. But how much of their efforts are to this? If a child is playing organized baseball, we want that to be Little League – Registered trademark baseball. You know, Steve Keener is the CEO of Little League Baseball. I've, I've interviewed him many times. I think he's a very sincere man. I think he wants participation in youth baseball to increase. I, I think that's definitely on his agenda. However, youth baseball is a pretty competitive market. Cal Ripken and Babe Ruth League Baseball, they're kind of partners in, at this age group. Cal Ripken has a Little League, well, has a World Series going on in the month of August in Aberdeen, Maryland. They're a competitor to Little League Baseball. And, you know, I've talked to Keener many times about that. And uh, it's clear that he wants more kids playing baseball, but he also wants them playing Little League. And there's pressure on that, too. I mean, Keener has said he opposes year-round baseball. He opposes travel baseball. But Little League has sanctioned fall baseball leagues. It's signed a deal with something called the Baseball Factory, which I think is one of those training outfits 
that you can pay lots more money to to get your kid to swing like a robot. There is this this contradiction here. You know, you watch the league and you think everybody is just playing for fun. Some of these teams are travel teams or effectively travel teams. And you can tell the ones that play year-round because they've got that robotic swing. And I wonder watching it, you know, how much does an all-white team from some suburb play compared to the all-black team from Chicago that everyone has fallen in love with? How much coaching, how many tournaments, how much summer baseball, how much travel baseball? Is the league part of the solution of getting more kids to play sports, or is it part of the escalation of youth sports? We're all advocates for youth sports in this room. I mean, we all want kids to be playing sports. We think it's healthy and an important part of growing up. So so let's be clear about that. I think I'm, I'm speaking for Mike and Stefan in saying that. My objection, to the extent that I have one, to Little League is that, you know, in terms of the Little League World Series, we're talking about the professionalization of youth sports in ways that benefit almost everyone involved except the kids on the field, in my opinion. I mean, certainly ESPN benefits. The corporate sponsors of the event benefit. And I've written about that. I know Stefan has opinions about that. The hotels in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. You know, you can stay in a hotel room in Williamsport in February for probably $39. This week, it's going to cost you 220 So it's an economic development engine for Williamsport. All of that is fine, but not on the backs of 11- and 12-year-old kids. That's my objection. But how do we know that they're suffering? It's very hard to, even if a kid says he loves it, how do you separate that from, you know, parents telling him that he loves it? And then how do you take that further step back and saying, well, even if parents are loving it and therefore the kids are loving it, they shouldn't be loving it? Well, Mike, I think that's exactly the right question. And, you know, don't take my word for it. I'm a journalist, but you know, I've talked to many child psychologists and pediatric sports docs and educators And I I think there's a very strong consensus that this experience inherently is too intense for a 12- and 13-year-old kid. I I spoke a couple of years ago to William Pollack. He's a a child psychologist at Harvard Medical School, and he's written several books about kids and sports. And and he said to me something that really resonated. He said, you know, the Little League World Series, it's like putting a little kid in a man's suit. And I thought, that's it exactly. I mean, how can you take a 13-year-old kid, put him in front of 40,000 people in a stadium and, and, and a worldwide television audience of 20 million and feel good about that? If, if you're a parent and you recognize the, the intensity of that, I can't imagine my son, when he was playing youth baseball at age 12, benefiting from that sort of intense experience. I mean, last night I'm watching the game and there is a child, a 13-year-old child pitching in a game crying his eyes out during the game. And, you know, the announcers, the broadcasters were saying, hey, look, uh, this just shows you how much these kids care about this game. It's, it's an emotional <laughs> game. They really care about this. You know, Dan Wetzel at Yahoo wrote a piece this week that he's written before saying that kids, that these kids should be paid in some way. And not that they should be get contracts to be paid, but that the way that the spelling bee, which also puts kids 
on national television in prime time in front of millions of people. You know, the winners of the Spelling Bee get some money. Like, they had a lot of money, actually. The winners of the Geography Bee, which is also on television, get a sizable amount of money, too. We're talking in the tens of thousands of dollars. And that you could find a way to compensate these kids with some sort of scholarship or some sort of stipend that exceeds just the honor of being part of the Little League World Series. Is that absurd? Does that just make this worse? Or is that actually a cure in some ways for the hypocrisy of doing what we do to children by, by putting them on TV this way? And I think one of the, the issues would be what about the, the amateur status of a 12-year-old yeah. kid? I want to play high school baseball and I got paid $1,000 to play in the Little League World Series. Am I, <laughs> am I still eligible to play in, in high school? That would be one of my concerns. But, but certainly from a, a value-generated perspective – Monet Davis is making some money for some people, and she's not probably – she's probably not making – seeing any of it. So, yeah, I mean I think a lot of the arguments pro and con that we're making in the NCAA discussion about whether college athletes should be paid are applicable to the Little League World Series. Why not? Yeah, I think that the issue of crying – and, of course, the cameras don't cut away from that – in our, in our uh, segment for Slate Plus listeners, we're going to talk about things that the cameras do cut away for, like people on the pitch. Yes, man, it's pretty it's... good about not exploiting the criers. Well, you want, I mean, you get, t- I don't know how much they linger in the faces, but uh, I've seen some quotes where they say, yeah, the emotions of the game are important way to convey what's going on. I've also heard people, I mean, I've read some accounts of people who coach Little League, my kids are too young, who say that there actually is more crying in the World Series as televised on TV than will normally go on in a game. Of course, everything is ratcheted up. I do think a lot of the parents, the stuff that we're decrying about the World Series, the Little League World Series, I think a lot of that's exactly what a lot of parents want. A lot of parents want to put their uh, little men in suits, uh, sometimes little women, and see what happens. And that's, that's, it's something about this age range, this middle school late elementary and middle school age. They are not, it's like putting them in suits. They are not adults. We don't want to watch high school baseball and we don't want to watch seven-year-olds play t-ball or coach pitch baseball either. No, we do (laughs) not. You love those seven-year-olds. But there is something about, and it's the same, like I said, with the spelling bee, that there's something appealing about watching watching human beings on the cusp of adulthood do things as well or better than adults can do them. Yeah, and you know, I, I say this, everything that I'm saying, I'm saying as someone who has made, you know, 88% of the mistakes that you see being made in youth sports today. You know, my son played youth baseball. I pitched him too much. I had too much fun watching him do that. He ended up having Tommy John surgery. I probably created obstacles for him in terms of reaching his potential. Mark Hyman, the author of the book, Until It Hurts, <laughs> Okay, so youth sports and it But, you know, I, I have my yeah. hand up. You know, right. I, I'm not pointing fingers at other people uh, as much as I'm saying, hey, look, don't do what I did. Look, it, it's the human condition. We've all got, you know, it's in our DNA to want our, to see our kids succeed on a very public stage. That's just the reality. Getting back to the, the crying thing, what was so interesting last night I remember it was Stephen or Mike who said that, you know, ESPN does a pretty good job of not showing the crying. And that's exactly right. Um, Their policy is after the game, focus on the kids who are celebrating and not on the kids who are crying. But in this instance, last night, you had the pitcher during the game (laughs) crying. It's hard to broadcast a baseball game without showing the pitcher. I think that's the difficulty they had last night. Otherwise, I don't think we would have seen on national TV – 
this 13-year-old young man crying his eyes out. I felt very badly for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I want to get back to one sponsorship issue. And this is something that, Mark, you have a piece that's going to run in the Baltimore Sun tomorrow about this. Some of the sponsors of Little League include Gatorade, Frosted Flakes. They've actually used kids to read Frosted Flakes promos on ESPN. These are not, how should we say, the healthiest products for children to be consuming. Um, But they fund to a great extent, not just Little League Baseball, but youth sports generally. There are 40 million kids playing youth sports in the United States. Which sponsors, which corporate entities do you think are going to want a piece of that? It's, you know, the companies that are selling, among other things, junk food and fast food to kids and families. So it's no great surprise that uh, they're investing a lot of money in youth sports. And, you know, the piece I've, I've written for the Baltimore Sun questions that youth sports above all, should be about kids and the welfare of kids. And when it becomes about the interests of adults and corporate sponsors and so forth, that's when I think, you know, we, again, we've got to raise our hand and say, you know, we've kind of lost sight of what this is all about. I think if Frosted Flakes is going to exist, you've got to figure <laughs> that they're going to want to advertise and get to the little leaguers. Right. I mean, they're, they're not going to advertise, you know, Bananas. Yeah, their their target market is not eighty year old people living in Boca <laughs> I should, Raton. I should say that Chiquita is a sponsor of the Little League World Series, well, so true. I I, I take that back. But you know, Frosted Flakes is going to find eleven year old kids who like to eat Frosted Flakes, and where are they? They're watching the Little League World Series. We talk about all of this as if it was a recent phenomenon. Not so. Little League Baseball was founded in nineteen thirty nine in Pennsylvania by Carl Stotts. He wound up leaving. Little League in 1956 after a lawsuit against Little League that revolved around a corporate sponsor, right, Mark? Well, Carl Stotts was, you know, the founder. He had a vision for Little League. He needed money. In order to realize that vision, he uh, made a deal with a corporate sponsor, and ultimately the, the composition of the board of Little League changed. It became much more national in scope. Carl Stotts was unhappy about that or certain aspects of that and was forced out and or his role was reduced in a way that made him very unhappy. And he ended up leaving in a very nasty split. And he never saw another Little League game after he left in 1956. He died in 1992, never saw another Seriously, game in Williamsport or anywhere, never another game. Wow. They found him floating in a bathtub full of frosted flakes. But the interesting thing is the debate we're having today is, is by no means a new one. I, I mean, as early as the early 50s, there were educators, the American Medical Association, raising questions about the intensity of youth sports and whether it was appropriate for kids and whether our view of youth sports had been you know, somehow polluted by the, the influence of parents. Remember that before Little League, youth sports was primarily run by educators. It was school-based Parents had a very minor role. And once Little League and Pop Warner came on the scene, then it then youth sports became about the ambitions and the vision of parents. By the early 50s, that was troubling a lot of people with professional backgrounds in youth development. So what we're talking about today, I, I have to say, it, we could have been having the same discussion 50 years ago. Yeah, it, I would have died to play in the Little League World Series when I was in 
fifth, sixth, seventh grade. I tried out. If it weren't for that damn ball taking a bad bounce and hitting me in the nose, <laughs> I would have made the Pelham Little League All-Star team, I'm convinced. There is something so appealing about this. It's hard on one level to want to criticize it. I'm watching these games. Right. Uh, Monet Davis is going to pitch in prime time on Wednesday night. The audience for that game is going to be enormous. That, I'm curious. I want to watch it. It's great theater. How do we rationalize the desire to be part of this and while we recognize what we find so troubling or odious about it? You know, Stefan, you wrote several years ago something that, that really sticks with me. You, you call the Little League World Series a guilty little pleasure. And I think that's exactly what it is. You know, we're kind of all sneaking glimpses of the thing on TV, even though we know at some level that it's wrong, that this is not in the interest of kids. We're not going to turn this train around. As long as there's an audience for this game, there are going to be games on television, there are going to be corporate sponsors. I think the best we can do is make the case to parents that our goal and our agenda as parents should be to instill in our kids a love of sports. We want them to play sports throughout their lives. We want them to reach their potential as athletes. If we have those values as parents and we reflect those values, kids are going to have a positive experience. We're not getting rid of the Little League World Series. That's not happening. I don't think we should. And maybe we shouldn't. But we can't put kids first in a way that we're not doing now. We don't, we don't need junk food companies as underwriters of youth sports in the United States. Do you know? we need to watch Monet Davis take her turn on the pitching rubber in a start time that's after the start time of Major League Baseball games? Perfect example. I mean, the, the, the losing team Sunday night, that game ended at about 10 o'clock. They're back on the field at 3 o'clock in the afternoon the next day to play their next hey, suck game. suck it up, kid. Come on. Yeah, they got a lot of greenies. Seriously. <laughs> uh, I don't have kids at that age. So maybe my opinion will change, and I just don't think that they're going to be, you know, gung-ho about baseball. But if they are, that's cool. I definitely think that there are excesses. And yet I say to myself, well, let's construct some sort of uh, scenario where the kids who love to play baseball play baseball and the adults who are into it are into it and people pay attention. And, and then it's great when they win and maybe the nation it thinks it's charming. Like, uh, you know, back when you only had the finals on ABC, uh, wide world of sports and, you know, it wouldn't look that much different than what little league baseball is now. And frosted flake sponsoring it to me doesn't, is not that big a deal. I think things that I object to is obviously there's the uh, propaganda aspect. So they always talk about the major leaguers and the people who are in the Little League World Series and what it meant to them. And those are the winners. Those are probably the best athletes on their team. Those are the people who it all worked out for. You know, you never hear people who don't even get to the World Series or people who didn't have a good time. And why would you on the broadcast? But that's a little annoying. But I'm kind of interested in the statistic. If our absolutely ratcheting up the youth sports, if what we've done with youth sports, the, you know, almost militarization of youth sports, if that really has helped basically Baseball would be a good sport to see the effects. What we'd be seeing is that as compared to other countries where which hasn't haven't undergone this, you know, ratcheting up like the Dominican Republic, there'd be so many more Americans in the uh, major leagues because this system would be creating these super athletes. And that just hasn't been the case. In fact, the number, the percentages have been dropping. So I don't even know if this whole arms race actually redounds to actually forget everyone else. The thing that you could say at least that it does is create these better major leaguers and the elite of the elite are going to benefit from this. But I don't really think it does. 
I think one of the the effects of you know having this incredible goal of the Little League World Series is that kids are starting earlier and they're becoming specialists in one sport. And you have seven year olds who do nothing all year but pitch. So you know when they're eleven, they may be great pitchers. When they're fourteen, uh, they're out of baseball because they they've used up their arms before they're even in high school. So. I'm not a believer that the Little League World Series is, you know, a great feeder system for the big leagues. But it's really good entertainment. It's great. You it's know, a and, guilty and, little pleasure. It is a guilty little pleasure. And let's also say that, you know, the main storyline this year about this girl from Philadelphia is a great storyline. And it is good. great to see this girl competing with boys and dominating when she's pitching. You know, and it's hard to see those kinds of examples in other sports. So, you know, let's give Little League a little credit for helping to produce a positive storyline. Agreed. Agreed. All right, Mark Hyman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Mark Hyman is a journalist. He is a professor. He is the author of, among other books, The Most Expensive Game in Town, The Rising Cost of Youth Sports, and Its Toll on Today's Families. Canada's proposal to host the 2015 Women's World Cup included an unusual condition. Every game would be played on artificial turf. Had such a pitch-pitch been made for the men's tournament, the bid would have been doomed. But Canada won, and now with the tournament 10 months away, player complaints are getting louder. More than 60 international players from 13 countries, including Abby Wambach and Alex Morgan of the United States, have signed an online petition calling on our beblazered friends at FIFA to lay down grass. Bonnie Ford of ESPN joins us via telephone from somewhere near Philadelphia. Hey, Bonnie. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. Let's start with the turf. There are practical considerations here. Players prefer grass to turf for reasons of safety and playability, and I think most fans prefer grass, too. I hate watching those little flecks of black rubber fly up in the air when players run and kick and slide. How much do you think this is, is being led by the practical reality of playing on this versus the perceived unfairness of the women having to play on turf as opposed to grass? Well, I think we really have to go back to the root of this problem, which is that Canada wound up being the only nation to uh, submit a full bid for this event. Right which is really a disconnect between our perception of how popular the game has become worldwide and you know what countries would be willing to host it. Zimbabwe actually had a bid proposal, but it never got to the finish line. So in my mind, once it was clear for whatever reasons that that was going to be the case, where were the progressive federations in the world on this when that bid got submitted? Where was the United States? Where was Japan? Where was Norway, Germany, Sweden? You name it. Why didn't they get up on their hind legs and say, hey, you know, this surface alters the game in a way that is not going to be beneficial to the sport as a whole. We don't want this. How can we change this? And to my knowledge, that did not happen. So the player response, which I first wrote about 13, 14 months ago, is all well and good, but it was late in the game, and I don't know what the chances of their lawsuit are or aren't, but it's just late in the game to start to try to make a change uh, that involves so many venues and so much investment already on the part of the Canadian Organizing Committee. When you mentioned Zimbabwe, I said to myself, oh, what I would do to see a picture of Sepp Blatter ch shaking hands with Robert Mugabe. 
And then I just Googled it, and here from 2011. Oh, you're shocked, Sepp, Mike? Yeah, it's Sepp Blatter shaking hands. Uh, FIFA's president controversially meets Mugabe and pledges a million over four years. The question with the turf is, you know, the finals at Wembley Stadium, which is, you know, huge mecca for soccer, that's played on similar kinds of turf. When some venues have turf in a World Cup, I don't hear a hue and cry. That doesn't mean the players aren't dissatisfied. It doesn't happen in a World Cup, Mike. It's never happened with a men's World Cup. I don't think he or a Women's World Cup, but I could be wrong on that. I think if you go back to the piece I wrote, there, there's been a creep, sort of, of artificial surfaces into the game, which is why, actually, Canada's bid conformed to the rules as they're written. It's just never happened. But there are surfaces, as we all know, in, in some professional leagues, and the surface at Wembley is a, is a hybrid surface. It's yeah. grass reinforced mm-hmm. with synthetic material, then again, we all know what would have happened if there had been a bid on the men's side of this kind. It just never would have gone anywhere. I guess the question becomes, is there anything the women could do? At this stage, I've got to say, and again, I haven't read uh, the complaint uh, that was filed. I I don't know what their chances are in the international realm of of getting this overturned, but I, I would have to think the odds are low. And there's ripple effects, too. Aside from the injuries on the turf, and we've all seen that uh, photo that Sydney LaRue tweeted over a year ago, early in her season here, of her legs being just torn up as if she had been sliding on cheese graters. That's one thing. The other issue is if you're going to play the World Cup on artificial turf, you have to train on it. Training on it takes a toll on the body. Even if you don't rip yourself up, the players tell me that the daily wear and tear of uh, your joints and, and how you feel after you train hard on that surface is a whole different deal than training on grass. Yeah, Thierry Henry doesn't play on turf in Major League Soccer. He usually takes games off or most of the games off. We're talking about FIFA, and let's not forget that FIFA had to be dragged into adding women to its executive committees. A decade ago, Sepp Blatter very famously said that women's soccer would be more appealing if the players wore hot pants. Let the women play in more feminine clothes like they do in volleyball, he said. They could, for example, have tighter shorts. Female players are pretty, if you excuse me for saying so, and they already have some different rules to men, such as playing with a lighter ball. That decision was taken to create a more female aesthetic, so why not do it in fashion? Of course, they don't play with a lighter ball. Bladder's gotten a little bit better, at least he's been woken up, but this is not the most progressive organization. Uh, FIFA, the IOC, there are issues here in terms of gender relations. Again, I'd really like to see the issue of why aren't there more bids? That needs to be addressed, and that needs to come from the top. Encouragement of yeah. you know more nations who are capable of hosting the event, that needs to happen. And then secondarily, whatever the bid review process is, needs to be very open and transparent so that this doesn't come as a surprise to the world's top players and get sort of sprung on them as it appears to have been. Some sports, though, do seem to do better in terms of gender relations. Our Slate colleague Amanda Hess wrote a terrific piece looking at the NBA where just in recent weeks, the San Antonio Spurs hired a WNBA veteran, Becky Hammond, as a full-fledged assistant coach. The Players Association hired lawyer Michelle Roberts as its executive director. Uh, the NBA scores high all the time on Richard Lapchick's Institute for Ethics and Diversity in Sport Racial and Gender Hiring Survey. Amanda wrote that, quote, where other sports have allowed for the rare exception, basketball has been concertedly building a trend. One reason that she cites is that women play basketball well and professionally, but the latter is only because the NBA decided to start a league. What do you think sets some sports apart? I mean, is it just playing 
soccer players, there are a lot of good soccer players who are women. In the case of basketball, I do think we have now over 40 years, really, of very grounded uh, women's and youth girls' basketball leagues and programs to build from. So women have more knowledge of the game from the inside. They have more of an affinity for it. It is played, I believe, on the same size court, uh, on the same surface, so to speak, as the men's. And so, yes, that's a very uh, simple and, I, in my estimation, correct assessment of why there's more synergy, so to speak. But I also think, and this is a bit trickier, but there is a cultural aspect to it. The NBA has always been had a more progressive strain to it than other leagues. And why? I think that's also fairly simple. It was it's a league that's always had to be more sensitive to diversity concerns because of the population of minority athletes in their ranks. So I think that lends itself to a sort of, hey, you know, let's not just look at minorities in a racial sense, let's look at it in a gender sense as well. So I think women have been more welcome in the front offices, in roles of communications directors, and as we've seen in roles uh, in zebra stripes, in, in every role. And yeah, Violet Palmer. Yeah. This is true. It's uh, always been said about the NBA. I talk to many female sports writers who say they have a much easier time covering basketball teams. And I think part of it, everything you cited, just the size of the organization, you could get your hands around it. You know, if three or four guys on the Spurs had direct interactions with Becky Hammond, that's a third or a quarter of the team, right? And, and that is the case. So I think that, you know, things become less bureaucratic, more personal, and someone whose personal qualities are exemplary like Becky, they're just going to shine through in that situation. To your point, I remember, and I went into sports writing a little bit later. I spent some time on Cityside first in my career. And so the, and the first locker rooms I had to go into were NBA locker rooms and never an issue. In fact, we joked about it in our small sorority of, of women sports writers way back, you know, 20, 25 years ago, that that was where we gravitated because it was easy to do our work. We didn't have to think about being harassed, being threatened, right. and... It was very evident to me at the time. Again, that was a tone that it did come from the top down, but it also came from the bottom up. I think the players were very receptive to it, and uh, that's why it worked. There are still these weird outliers in sports that women seem to be not permitted to do, the Olympics in swimming, and this has become an issue in the last few weeks as well. Uh, Women don't swim the 1500 in the Olympics Men do women. The longest event for women is the 800 meters. Uh, Emma Spann of Sports Illustrated wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a couple months ago about why women don't or aren't allowed to play baseball. And there are actually, starting today in Malibu, California, tryouts for the U.S. Women's National Baseball Team, 40 women competing for 20 spots on the team that will compete in the Women's Baseball World Cup in Japan next month. So there are still these pockets in sports that are missing something, that we're not, you know, we're not encouraging kind of competitive equality. Well, let's take swimming first, because that's one of my favorite topics. I I was a swimmer. I love covering swimming. In my mind, it's just absurd that the 1500 is not an Olympic event. To me, it's an easy fix, and I don't understand all the bureaucratic ins and outs of this to scratch the 800 and put the 1500 on the program. 
it's really counterintuitive when you think about the mass participation endurance events that have become so popular all over the world, marathons and triathlons of every distance. Women and men are racing on the, over the same distances, and it's become popular, I think, partly for that reason. Not that women are racing against the men, but they're racing on their own terms on the same courses. So, i.e., I can run, if I wish, uh, the New York City Marathon, which is never going to happen, by the way. But if I were an Olympic-level swimmer, I couldn't swim the metric mile. And that's the other thing. The mile is sort of a magic distance in sport, whether it's the mile as we know it or the metric mile. It's something, a standard that folks have measured themselves against forever. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't have it in the Olympics, then some of your best athletes are not going to gravitate towards those distance events. Now, do I know that watching a 1500 is not everybody's cup of tea? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I happen to take real pleasure in watching athletes do that. And I know I'm not alone. It's stretching the limits, right? The training and the pacing and the mindset that it takes. You know, swimmers call it black line, looking at the black line in the pool for all those days and months and years. And to see a lead fall apart or a lead grow in one of those races, to me, is just as exciting as seeing a 100-meter freestyle. So the New York Times piece pointed out that it's been a battle that doesn't seem winnable at the moment, but I sure hope that changes in my lifetime. You know, the New York Times, which wrote about this last week, also pointed out that Katie Ledecky, personal best in the 1500, would have put her 28th in a field of 59 in the men's national championship, this That's year's right. men's national championship. You know, this is no longer obviously about our women, you know, too fragile to run marathons and swim a mile. Right. And so I think what's happened in terms of uh, gender equality in sports in my lifetime, so I'm almost the exact same age as Title IX, and I just never grew up in a world where there was a prevalent attitude that women shouldn't be doing that. I mean, to me, that's dead. The idea that, you know, a woman should be unathletic or a jock, a girl who's a jock is somehow unsexy. I mean, if anything, the pendulum has totally swung the other way. And, you know, whenever you see the ESPN, you know, body issue and all the women saying, I just want to prove that muscles are sexy. It's like, yes, societally, we have signed on to that. So I think attitudes really are changing. I do think that there are holdovers and there are older benighted men in federations like FIFA. And we were talking about uh, cycling and why there's no women's tour de France. But I think what's happening is even though attitudes are changing and there's not a, a groundswell of the masses saying, no, women are too fragile to do it or shouldn't do it, money has become so much more important. So whereas once the Olympics were, well, let's just have the events that really test what our ideals are, now it's all about, you know, what's going to get good ratings, what's going to return the best return on investment, and that's underlying a lot of the artificial turf discussion that we've been having, and that's why a lot of these, even three-set tennis, which is another thing we discuss. The money issue is so important. There's not as, as much money on the women's tour. So we have two, I think, trend lines going in opposite directions. And even as the attitudes are getting better, the role of money is increasing, and that's what's conspiring to hold some women events back. One last footnote on the swimming. The last swimming event, or I should say the open water swimming event that was added, the 10K, which is a, a full-out you know, two-hour effort, is the same for men and women. So why have that beautiful standard out there and not have the 1500 in the pool? Makes no sense.
Well, these organizations certainly have the ability to write these discrepancies, but they don't always have the will. Or as Mike pointed out, they feel like it's not worth the investment in terms of the return. With soccer, you know, there have been reports that FIFA made $2 billion from the, the summer's World Cup in Brazil. How much would it cost to resurface the six stadiums in Canada for the duration of the World Cup? It's going to cost, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, I mean, a million, few million dollars, maybe max. But these organizations don't do a terribly good job of weighing the perception versus the expense. There's a great grass pitch in Toronto, by the way, which is not being used. Right, right. Because we're talking about all of this, the Little League World Series, which we just had a segment about, Bonnie, on Wednesday night, a girl will be taking the mound, uh, Monet Davis from Philadelphia. That's going to get enormous ratings. And one woman baseball player who's become friends with her and has been watching her is Mamie Peanut Johnson, who pitched <laughs> against men in the latter years of the Negro Leagues. The irony in this is huge to me. I mean, baseball, very few girls play in Little League or in high school. And yet the greatest attraction that we have this summer from the League World Series is the fact that a girl is playing. She's breathtaking. I mean, I got my first glimpse of her. I've had some vacation and family time and and got my first glimpse of her a couple nights ago. And when you say your jaw drops, you're usually saying it figuratively. My jaw actually dropped watching her. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a time when it was really novel for girls to be playing on any team, let alone a team that made it to the, the highest level. And as much as I have, you know, a slight bit of ambivalence about 12-year-olds being so under, you know, the microscope, I do feel as if seeing her out there performing so composed, so powerful, so striking, it's really moving to me. Well, and it does make you wonder why have we why have we forced girls to play softball, and why have we decided that softball is their sport and baseball is not? This is just a historical anomaly that was created. You know, and softball, as Emma Spann pointed out in that piece, was created as a winter indoor sport for men. It evolved into the women's sport when the people that ran baseball decided that baseball was too dangerous for right. girls and women. Right. I've played it, and uh, by the way, the the. <laughs> We can start just with the name of the sport, because the ball isn't too soft if you get hit with a line drive on the pitching mound. I've had some, uh, back in the day, had a few bruises with seams, but it's interesting. I think at this point in time, it obviously is a very popular sport participation-wise. It's an NCAA uh, scholarship sport. Dismantling that whole superstructure, if, if that's what people want, would be quite an undertaking. But should girls and women be able to explore opportunities to play hardball? Absolutely. No question. I just want to note that uh, while Monet's performance is certainly striking, it does sadden me a little bit that on vacation you're watching sports. You should be out going to Shakespeare festivals or exploring the deep in a bathysphere. Something unsports related. Can I confess we were flipping channels, my husband and I, and it came on and I, I made him stop. I, I right. had to see, you know, this, this girl that everyone was talking about. It does strike me, though, what you were saying about softballs, that so many women's sports started were, were founded as pretty much explicitly lesser versions of men's sports. Oh, men have baseball. We have to have this to protect the girls' softball. If you look at the original rules of women's basketball and not crossing half court, you know, for the defensive players and so forth. And the ultimate irony might be 
the roughest of the men's sports, football, that was never deemed appropriate for women. And then some women started playing it. But right about the time right now when women would, if you look at the histories of other sports, break, women breaking through in traditionally men's sports, right now is the time it should be happening with football, except there's all this uh, evidence about brain injuries and so forth that maybe the greatest favor that the patriarchy ever did to womankind was not to uh, force football upon them. That's one way to look at it, although I think there has been, and rugby is obviously a niche sport in this country, but there's been quite a growth in women's rugby, and uh, any rugby player will tell you that that is a rougher sport because of the fact that you're not wearing equipment and you're having direct contact. I am just in awe of women that are able to overcome what I think is a really deeply ingrained cultural bias against contact and hard contact and tackling and aggression and play that sport. I know that would not have been me. England, by the way, defeated Canada 21 to 9 on Sunday in the Women's Rugby World Cup final. Bonnie Ford, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Bonnie Ford writes about the Olympics and many other things for ESPN. All right, it's after ball time, Mr. Pesca. I think we should do Little League. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Let's right. hit it. Hit it. Little League history. First Little League game played June 6, 1939. Carl Stotts and friends coached and ran. They even laid out the field. Uh-huh. First game was Lundy Lumber beat Lycoming Dairy 23-8. to Lycoming, though, came back to win the first half title. Lundy Lumber won the second half of the season. Lycoming Dairy took the championship three to two. I don't like like homing dairy as much as a phrase. So nah. our, our afterball is going to be Lundy lumber. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Mike, what's that your, is correct. What's your, that what's is your, the correct choice. What is your Lundy lumber? I'm going to talk about a book called against football. One fans reluctant manifesto. That fan is Steve almond. And I think this is a pretty decent definition of what his book is, which is a manifesto. It's a small book and it says its job is to be full of obnoxious opinions and his thesis is that football legitimizes and fosters within us a tolerance for violence, greed, racism, and homophobia. Now, I do not think that Steve Almond gets there. I think that mostly it's a reiteration, almost entirely it's a reiteration of the stories, the horror stories that many of us have come to know. You know, there's one chapter that deals with League of Denial. Well, there was a whole book in PBS documentary that was League of Denial. So you're not going to get that much from that chapter. And they, he tells you the story of Pat Tillman. He brings a little perspective to it, but mainly it's the story of Pat Tillman. But where it does work and why I liked it, even though it did not change my opinion, but challenged me here and there, I think it works well on the sentence level, which doesn't surprise me. He's a very good writer. And not just his own sentences, but some interesting quotes from others. He does quote Hunter S. Thompson saying about Nixon, whatever else might be said about Nixon, and there is still serious doubt in my mind that he could pass for human, he is a goddamn stone fanatic on every facet of pro football. And I'd never seen, I knew that, I knew that Thompson thought that about Nixon. It's a good quote. But here's a great quote from Abby Hoffman, just talking about how prevalent football was. Abby Hoffman said, about football haters, quote, they're a bunch of peacenik creeps watching a football game on television in color is fantastic. So I enjoyed that. Here are some Steve Almond things to say about football. Just little phrases like, there's no attempting to justify this behavior, which is getting so riled up for games and being blind to the violence, but 
the deranged patterns of our fandom, though they manifest themselves in the here and now, took shape years ago. And then he starts talking about his fandom of the Raiders. And he has this great analogy with the Raiders. For those who are not familiar with the Raiders, they are the epitome of the term once proud, a franchise incapable of accepting that its best years are past. I think of them as the NFL's version of a wildly popular child actor who starred in a couple of minor hits in the 80s and has now grown into an ugly, entitled, coke-addicted adult who struts around D-list parties in mirrored sunglasses and parachute pants, reeking of polo cologne, and insulting the women who decline his invitation to head back to his pad to check out his python. Yes, that is a great analogy. The Oakland Raiders are indeed (laughs) screech-like. One of the things Amon does is to talk about this as a, it's one fan's reluctant manifesto. That is true. He's a fan and it does seem reluctant. I mean, he loved John Elway, loves the Raiders, went to Stanford, sold hot dogs at Stanford Stadium. And he talks about how amazing John Elway was. Elway ran around like crazy until he spotted something nobody else did, a path to redemption where others saw only ruin. In the moment of greatest peril, he summoned poise. In the midst of entropy, he found order. We all want that magic within ourselves. And failing that, we want to watch as someone else does. I mean, he could write for NFL films and he gives it's the appeal of football. And he lays out his case, and it's not a bad case. And I will say there are times when he cites evidence that, strictly speaking, is not true. Like he cites the uh, NFL Players Union assertion that the life expectancy of an NFL player is two decades shorter than normal life expectancy. That has been demonstrated to be untrue. He also talks about the uh, reception to Michael Sam as evidence of the homophobia within the NFL. I think that let's give it a year. It very well could be evidence of perceived but not actual homophobia that the NFL is actually more accepting than we ever give it credit for. So to me, the argument doesn't quite get there. I am still a football fan, but I will say this. There was a very short sentence at the end of the book that challenged me, and it wasn't one of these great or well-constructed sentences I've read so far. It was pretty pithily, it is immoral to root for a game that causes brain damage to its participants. And I said to myself, let me wrestle with that, and here's what I've decided. The answer to me is just how often, how frequently, how reliably it does. And in my mind, there are so many instances that it does, and the question to me isn't that they knew about it. It's that we've done nothing so far to correct this, so I want to give it time to correct it. It's why I'm still a fan. And I also think that football causes brain damage in many of its participants, but still not most, though the word most isn't the threshold. There's some number. I can't quite articulate what it is. It's more than 10, but less than 40. That would be a necessary percentage of football participants to have brain damage for me to agree with that statement, that it's immoral to support the game. But against football, you know, I I often like reading things that challenge me that I don't agree with. And even if they don't change my mind, they make me think of some new things. Against football, one fan's reluctant manifesto by Steve Almond. Okay, Stefan, what is your Lundy Lumber? All right, I played in the National Scrabble Championship last week, as most of you know. As usual, I choked. I finished a miserable 16 and 15 in Division 2. My 12-year-old daughter, though, went 20 and 11 and finished fourth in Division 4. Yay, 12-year-old daughter. And we have a new champion, 24-year-old Conrad Bassett Bouchard of Portland, Oregon. Conrad's part of a group of young and brilliant and pretty well-adjusted players that I proudly call Spawn of Word Freak. If you'd like to read about 
How Conrad Did It, and you should check out my fellow Scrabbler, Oliver Raider's fine piece on 538.com. The really good news from the Scrabble tournament, however, was this. Everybody survived. And I mention this because while 520 of us were swapping tiles in Buffalo, 1,800 chess players were capturing pawns at the Chess Olympiad in Tromsø, Norway. And two of them died, one in the middle of a game, one in his hotel room. The player who died over the board was 67-year-old Kurt Meyer, a Swiss-born member of the Seychelles team. Meyer was playing in the last of the 11 games in the two-week tournament when he had a heart attack. His son was playing on the board next to him. I can't say that I'm surprised. These tournaments are incredibly stressful. Scrabble's 31-game marathon lasted five days. I'm still a physical and emotional wreck. The Chess Olympiad lasted two weeks. Players played 11 games. Some games lasted six hours. The pressure from without or more often from within can be huge. Chess, in fact, has a long history of players dying over the board, sometimes because the great bishop in the sky was calling, sometimes because of stress, sometimes because of rage over a game. The website chess.com has helpfully chronicled some of those deaths, as well as other ways chess players have died, in a post titled Deaths of Chess Players. I will read a few with minimal editing. In 1485, Pedro Arbues, Dominican member of the Inquisition, ordered victims of persecutions to stand in as figures in a game of living chess. The game was played by two blind monks. Each time a piece was taken, the person representing that piece was put to death. In 1584, Ivan the Terrible died of a stroke while playing chess against his advisor, Bogdan Belsky. In 1598, Paolo Boy, one of the leading chess players of the 16th century, died in Naples. Historian H.J.R. Murray says he was poisoned by jealous rivals. Other sources say he caught a cold while hunting. In 1909, chess master Rudolf Swiderski took some poison and then shot himself in the head with his revolver. He had recently been convicted of perjury in connection with a love affair, and he was to face legal proceedings. In 1935, Mrs. R.H. Stevenson, one of the top women chess players in the world, was killed after she walked into the propeller of the plane she had been flying on. She was on her way to Warsaw to take part in the World Women's Chess Championship. In 1959, a Soviet scientist killed another Soviet scientist at a research station in Vostok, Antarctica, after a chess game argument. The losing player got so mad that he killed his opponent with an axe. Afterward, the Soviets banned chess at their Antarctic stations. In 1962, Abe Turner, an American chess master, was stabbed nine times in the back by a fellow employee, Theodore Smith. At the office of the magazine Chess Review, his body was placed in a safe and found by the superintendent of the building later that afternoon. In 1979, Cecil Purdy died of a heart attack while playing in the Sydney Australia Chess Championship. His last words were, I have a win, but it will take some time. Can I ask you a question, Stefan? Yes. In much of the coverage of Mr. Bassett Bouchard, great name, Conrad Bassett Bouchard's, Victory, they, they say what his final word was. What was his final word? I don't even remember because yeah. final word's not that relevant. That's my question. Does it annoy you that it's not that relevant? Annoy only in as much as, look, if you want to understand this game in depth, it's not about the weird words because every word is equal. 
Conrad and the other players at the top of this game know pretty much all of the words. It's just about finding the right (laughs) word. They know all the words. It's just about finding the right word at the right time based on what you got on your rack and what's on the board in front of you. It could be something really obscure, though. I must say, the really obscure words are cool to find. Um, My favorite play of my own, not at Bassett Bouchard level, but I played, there was T.I. in the upper right-hand corner, and I played Timpanist down through the triple, a nine-letter nine-letter play. That was really nice, yeah. Yeah. All right, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment, leave us a rating, leave us a mint on our pillow. Come converse about the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.